If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in the 15th chapter. We began that a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we're in the tail, the tail stretch. What's it called? The home stretch. The tail end, the home stretch. Tail stretch. That's a new one. We could, I'll market that one. We're in the home stretch, so to speak. Um, verse 14 of chapter 15 is where we're going to pick up this morning. And that really begins Paul's epilogue, which is a fancy way of saying the closing. He started the opening, the greeting, so to speak, in the first half of chapter 1. Now he's closing the letter down, and it'll take the second half of chapter 15 and all of chapter 16. So in the remainder of this chapter, Paul's going to talk about his ministry, which is what we're going to look at today. He's going to talk about his future plans and what he's going to do, what he wants to do. And then in chapter 16, he's going to have a bunch of folks that he wants them to greet for him and have a closing benediction. So we truly are in that tail stretch or home tail, whatever I called it. So uh, we're going to read this morning verses 14 through 21, and we'll just go as far as the Lord allows us to this morning. Church, this is the Word of God. Follow along in your copy as I read. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, but... On some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way round to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it's been already this morning to worship you in song. We remain in that spirit of worship now as we open your word, which is authoritative to us. It is everything that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for this book. We treasure it. We are grateful that we can know that this is your very breath. And so there is life here. Father, there is new life here for those that you're calling to faith in your son Jesus this morning. There is hope for sustaining life for those who are struggling this morning. There is life in this word. I simply provide the opportunity to get in the way, Lord. 
And so I ask in Jesus' name that I would not do that. But instead, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring an anointing on me so that I would stay anchored to your text so that you would have prerogative to lead us this morning however you see fit. And Lord, if there's anything that I say that is not of you, may it fall on deaf ears. But in so much as it is anchored to your text, Father, may it root deeply in us and reap a spiritual harvest for your glory in our lives and in our church. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to do something very Baptist-y, and that is I'm going to alliterate. I don't usually do this. It's very rare, but um, just seemed like it was from the Lord. I usually don't say that either, but five A's of, of Paul's ministry this morning. So you can laugh, but write it down. Five A's of Paul's ministry. This seemed to come together. So we're going to talk about the audience of Paul's ministry. We're going to talk about the aim of his ministry, his assessment of his own ministry, the agent, that is the agent of change in Paul's ministry, and then his approach in his own ministry. So first, Paul tells us in this passage who the audience of his ministry is. And as you read throughout Paul's letters, it becomes readily apparent that his primary audience are Gentiles. That's his primary audience. Now, generally speaking, Paul's audience is whoever will listen to him. In whatever setting that he's in, he will preach the gospel, and it doesn't matter who you are, he will preach to you. He preached in synagogues, Jews and Gentiles alike, but he really felt like his primary calling was to the non-Jews, the Gentiles. That word in Scripture for the word Gentile is the word ethnos which is where we get our word ethnicity or ethnic. And the meaning of that word, which sometimes is translated nations, as in make disciples of all nations, or when we find it in places like chapter 15, verse, verse 16, where he mentions the word Gentiles, it's the same word, ethnos. So typically that word just means ethnicities other than or in addition to the Jews. So that's typically what that word means. And so he's called primarily to non-Jews. He, being a Jew himself, was tapped on the shoulder by Jesus Christ to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He says that specifically in verse 16. He says, God gave me the grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Um, Paul was convinced, and we see this all throughout his writings, that Jesus Christ specifically gave him a mission to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, which wasn't written by him, it was written by Dr. Luke, but Paul's in it. But before Paul shows up in earnest around chapter 12 or chapter 13, that early Christianity had a very Jewish flavor, which makes sense. Jesus was Jewish. He came from a Jewish family. His disciples were Jewish, All of his early followers, most of his early followers were Jewish. The the beginning of the church was in Jerusalem, which was and is the center of Jewish life. 
And so it had a very Jewish flavor up until about halfway through that book. But with the stoning of Stephen on the streets of Jerusalem, God used that incident to scatter his followers all throughout the Roman Empire. And we're told that with the scattering of those followers of Jesus, they began to proclaim the gospel wherever they went. In every little town that they went to. And one of those little towns was a town called Antioch. Not so little, but a lot of, a lot of folks came to faith in Christ. There was, a, there was a harvest of souls for the kingdom. People professed faith in Jesus Christ. They responded to the gospel just like they did in Jerusalem with the early, early believers. And so word of that got back to the apostles in Jerusalem. And they said, this looks to be, this appears to be God's answer to his promise to bring this gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. And so they sent Barnabas up to Antioch to encourage them and to disciple them. And Barnabas decided he couldn't do this on his own. And so he sent for this guy named Saul down in Tarsus, who would later become Paul, whom God had radically transformed by causing Jesus to show up on the road to Damascus. And so Saul responded to that call from Barnabas, and they both went up there and began to exhort the new believers in Antioch and disciple them. And, and once that church was well established, then the Holy Spirit set apart Barnabas and Saul, now Acts, church, Acts chapter 13, to send them out away from them. And they began church planting and sharing the gospel all throughout the Roman Empire. And that was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's plan to bring the nations to himself through the gospel. So that, that was, that was, this is Paul's audience. God tapped him on the shoulder. Jesus tapped him on the shoulder and gave him this specific calling to bring it to the Gentiles. But what does Paul say about his audience in this passage? What do we learn about his audience? How does he describe them? Well, he says in verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you. That word satisfied in some English translations, most English translations is usually translated something like I'm, I'm persuaded or I'm convinced, which seems to fit better with the original meaning of the Greek word. Uh, the, the sense of being satisfied means we're, we're, we're content, but the idea of the word is the reason I'm satisfied is because I'm satisfied that something is true. I'm satisfied with this because I'm convinced of its veracity. I, I know that it's true. It's the same word that Paul uses at the end of Romans 8, that familiar passage when he says in verses 38 and 39, I am sure, I am convinced, I am persuaded, if you will, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the same word there. I'm convinced of this. I'm, I'm satisfied with this truth because I know it to be true. So in chapter 15, verse 14, he says, I'm satisfied not about a truth out there. I'm satisfied by a people. I'm satisfied, he says, by you. I'm convinced. I'm, I'm persuaded about you, my brothers. Referring to believers in general, he doesn't designate Gentiles in particular here, but 
he, he insinuates in verse 16 that that's what he's talking about in this passage, that he's specifically talking about Gentiles. So about what was Paul convinced or persuaded about these believers in the church in Rome? What, what is he convinced about them? He says, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. One another. So Paul, Paul has some very nice things to say about them. He compliments them. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all wisdom. You're able to instruct one another. That word instruct, in some translations, is the word admonish. It comes from the Greek word nuthete, which gives us our word nuthetic. If you've heard of nuthetic counseling, it's admonishing one another with the word. Paul compliments them and says, listen, you've got, you're filled with goodness. That means generally upright and good in your, in your behavior, in your actions, in your life. And you're filled with all knowledge, so much so that you're encouraging and admonishing one another from the word. So he's complimenting them here. And his compliment leads us to ask two questions. One, what makes him convinced that these things are true about them? What, what is his evidence that he can point to and say this is true? As best we can tell, at this point in his ministry, he's never even been to, to Rome. At least not as a believer. He's never gone to visit the church that's in Rome. In fact, he tells us later in verse 22 that he has so often been hindered from coming to them, but now he's making plans to. He wants to, and of course, he will, but under arrest. That's also what Paul said all the way back in chapter 1. We're going to see a lot of similarities in this epilogue with what we saw in the opening in chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of verse 13, he says a very similar thing. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. So he hasn't visited the Roman church. Um, and, he, and he knew very, very few of them. He knew, a, he knew a handful of them. In fact, in chapter 16, we're going to see several people that, they, that he knew or knew of, and he wanted them to greet them for him. So he knew about them, and he was grateful for them. But also back in chapter 1, we also found out that the faith of the believers in Rome was widely known. They had a reputation for being a faithful people. In Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, when he says your faith is proclaimed in all the world, he's not speaking in a general sense that the faith that we share together, the gospel, is being shared in all the world. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They had a reputation for being a faithful people. Later in chapter 16, verse 19, he will say, your obedience is known to all. And so they were a faithful people. They had a reputation of, of being this. And, and I think we should pause here and, and admit, isn't this the reputation that we want? Isn't this the kind of reputation that we want to have as individuals and, and corporately as the body of Christ, that we want to be known as a faithful people? And so do you have that kind of reputation? Do we as a church have that kind of reputation? Paul says, you're full of goodness. 
you're filled with all wisdom and able to instruct one another and admonish one another. And so it's both their knowledge and their actions that he points to. It's their words and their life and their behavior and how they live. And I don't think Paul would have been complimenting them if it was one or the other. We've known people who are one or the other, right? We've known people who know a lot about the Bible, that know a lot about theology, but there's a lack of obedience in their life. They're a theology. They don't walk the walk. They just talk the talk. On the flip side, we also know people who might do the right thing, but they really don't even know why. It's more about the doing than it is the heart and the motive behind the doing. And neither of these are what we are to pursue. We're to be faithful people in our head, in our heart, and in our hands. So the question for all of us is, do we have this kind of reputation? Are we full of goodness? Can that be said of us? Would that be said of us in a characterizing way, in a general way, that they're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another from the word? Paul here was satisfied. He was convinced He was persuaded because of the testimony of others who knew them well and through the few people that he knew that represented them that this is precisely the reputation of these Roman Gentile believers. The second question that this compliment from the Apostle Paul in Romans 15 verse 14 leads us to ask is why does he tell them this? And and by way of consequence, why does he tell us this? I don't think the main point of this passage is Paul's compliment to the Gentile believers. I think that's a sub-point, if you will. It's a minor point here, but it's not the main point. The the first word of the next verse, verse 15, the the but that's there, gives us an indication that what Paul is really trying to get across here and tell them is that there are some areas of their life where they still need to grow. Some areas of their life where they still need to grow. It's like he's saying, there's some good things about you. Man, you're full, of, you're full of goodness, and you're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to instruct one another, and that really is good. There's no hypocrisy or insincerity in his tone whatsoever. He really is commending them for that. But he says, you know what? You're not there yet. You're, you, you haven't arrived at spiritual maturity There are still some things that you need to grow in. And so he gives them some exhortations. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, but, there's the uh, adversative there that tells us what he's trying to say, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot there, but what he starts out with saying is, I've written some very bold things to you. Now, when he says I've written some bold things, he doesn't mean I bore down really hard with my quill. He's not talking about bold-faced font. He says something similar to that at the end of Galatians when he says, see with what large letters I write to you so that you know it's me writing this to you. But here in Romans, that's not what he's doing. When he says, I've written some very bold reminders to you, he's saying, listen, I've I've given you some very strong exhortations 
in this letter. I've spoken to you very directly. I've given you some very bold and direct commands that you need to follow. And we ought to remember some of those that we've spent many, many weeks looking at. I want to I read some of these just by way of reminder. Some of these things that, that Paul has exhorted them in very boldly in this second half of the letter, chapters 12 through 15. He said in chapter 12, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. I'm not skipping around. This is like straight through. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. In chapter 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. He's giving them strong exhortations here. You need to make sure that you fulfill the debt of loving one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. Over and over again, these strong exhortations, these bold reminders. And we have to remember that he's not even their pastor. He's not even an elder in their church. And yet he is giving them these commands. He's never even been there. He's never even met most of them. And yet he is commanding them in this letter to do these things. See, all these commands from the Apostle Paul that he's given us, all these imperative verb forms that we've unpacked all throughout this section of the letter, these are not just arbitrary things that Paul the Apostle Paul thinks would be nice for Christians to do. Instead, they are clear and obvious implications of the gospel. Because remember, all of chapters 12 through 16, they are under the, the heading of Romans 12.1, where Paul makes that strong appeal to them. Where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, in light of the gospel, because the gospel is true, this, these truths that I laid out for you in 11 chapters, that you have no righteousness of your own, but you are desperate for an alien righteousness so that you can be made acceptable to a holy and sovereign God. And that God in his divine and sovereign wisdom, he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life for you and to die in your place so that by faith in Jesus Christ as your substitute, you might be given his righteousness as your own and the penalty of your sin is paid by him on the cross. In light of the truth of that, that is all true, we ought to live differently. And, and that's what he's been telling us. And so all of these things, all of these bold exhortations as he's been writing them, they are simply implications of that glorious truth of the gospel. So Paul's summary of the Gentile believers in Rome thus far is, listen, you're doing well. You're on the right track. You're full of goodness. You're filled with all wisdom. You're, you're able to instruct one another from the word, and that's good. But don't think that you have arrived. You're still being worked on. God is still forming you. And so I've written you these very bold things because God is still working on you. 
you're still in process. And boy, aren't we thankful that that is true of us as well, that we are still in process, that God is still working on us. He's still maturing us. And Paul's exhortations to the Roman believers are authoritative for us as well because God is using them to grow us and sanctify us. That word sanctify is a $3 seminary word, which just means to, to grow in Christ-likeness, that we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. And he's using these exhortations to bring that about, which leads us to the second A. The first A is the audience of Paul's ministry is Gentiles. You're doing well, but you're not there yet. God's still working on you. The second A is the aim of Paul's ministry. So what is his aim? What, what is the purpose of his ministry? What will Paul look back on at the end of his ministry and use as the measuring stick for success? He tells us in verse 16. Actually, go back to verse 15 to see it in context. It says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the aim of Paul's ministry is to be able, he wants to be able to present the offering of the Gentiles. What is that? It's not their, it's not their collection for the poor, but is the offering of their lives. Their changed lives, transformed by the grace of God, once being enemies, now being children of God. He wants to offer to God, to present to God these changed lives, their, their obedience to Jesus, their faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, their transformed lives, their lives conformed to Jesus. This is what Paul longs to be able to lift up to God and offer to God as his means of worship through his ministry. That's the aim of his ministry. That's what he's after. Paul was compelled to take the gospel to the, nation, to the nations, to all the ethnos, to all the Gentiles, because he was tapped on the shoulder by Jesus himself on that road to Damascus to have what he calls in verse 16, a priestly service of the gospel of God, which was, beginning of verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles so that, end of verse 16, so that, that's the language of mission, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So you see Paul's aim. His aim was to be able to lift up to God the offering of the Gentiles, transformed by the grace of God from those who were by their, we read out of Ephesians 2, from those who were by their very nature children of wrath, now they are adopted children of God by his grace. And to, and, and to see their changed lives, not just the fact that they came to faith in Jesus, but the fact that they are changed, that they are transformed, that, that, that now they look like Jesus They've been conformed to the image of Christ. It is Paul's longing at the end of his ministry to be able to offer up these Gentiles and say, God, you be glorified through this. That's his desire. That's his heart. He said very much the same thing in the opening five verses of this 
whole letter. Chapter 1, listen to the first five verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about, that's the language of mission again, that's the language of purpose, To bring about what? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. The purpose of Paul, that's that's it right there in chapter 1. That he he was given grace by God to be an apostle. Why? To bring about the, the obedience of faith among the nations, again, the word nations is ethnos, it's, it's, it's Gentiles, those other than Jews, the non-Jews, to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of Jesus' name. The point here is that Paul's aim in his gospel ministry was that the promise made to Abraham would be fulfilled. That through that family, through God's chosen people Israel, that he would be a blessing to all peoples, to all nations. His aim was to sow the seeds of the gospel among the Gentiles, not just so that converts would be made and that God would, that, that, that Paul would be able to, at the end of his ministry, present converts to the glory of God but that he would make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. People whose, people whose lives are transformed. Instead of following after the pagan gods, now these Gentiles are following after the Jewish Messiah. They're following after Yahweh. They're following after the Christ so that he would get all the glory. That's his aim. And, and Paul sees himself here in verse 16 as somewhat of a, a, a priest now, there's, there's no priesthood in New Testament Christianity, but Paul uses that word in verse 16 figuratively to talk about how he sees his role in this regard. That he sees himself as somewhat of a priest offering to God change, the changed lives of the Gentiles, gospel-transformed lives, that, that this is his offering to God. And Paul knows that in doing so, God will be glorified, just as he said at the, at the beginning of the letter, for the sake of his name. God knows, Paul knows that in offering these transformed lives, lives that have been transformed by the gospel, that have been conformed to the image of Christ, that God will be glorified through that. That the offering of Gentiles will be a tremendous offering of worship to God. And church, I think we should be reminded here that this ought to be our aim as well. Just as Paul wants to offer up to God the offering of the Gentiles' gospel-transformed lives as an offering of worship to God, just as Paul wants to do that, well, that should be our aim as well. We too must see that that is our offering, Not not just to offer others, that's part of it, but to offer ourselves. And so again, we go back to Romans 12, 1. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves. Remember when we looked at that? It is to offer up yourselves. It's that same kind of priestly service, to offer up yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The same kind of word and intent that he has here in Romans chapter 15. So believer, when Scripture commands you to do something, that you aren't currently doing or you don't want to do or you don't see the need to do. Or when scripture tells you to stop doing that which you are doing and you don't want to stop doing. Be reminded that the Lord is using scripture in your life to conform you to his image so that your life will be that, will be an offering of worship to God a holy and pleasing sacrifice, he says, which is your spiritual worship. And when we looked at that, we said the other way that we can understand the phrasing there in the Greek is this is your logical or rational service in light of all that God has done. Man, doesn't it just make sense that we would offer all of who we are to him? Not to pay him back. We could never pay him back. But because of the grace that he has shown to us, we now want to live a life that is pleasing and acceptable to him so that he would be honored and glorified so that we can offer up our lives in in almost like a priestly service to God, as Paul says. This ought to be our aim for our own lives. And so I think we should ask ourselves, what is God doing in our lives right now? What is God doing in your life right now? How is he shaping you? What are the rough edges that he's working on in your life? Whatever it is, remember that he's doing that because he's not done with you yet. You're still a work in progress. And by the grace of God, he is still conforming you to the image of his son. And he's doing that so that your life Now imperfectly, but one day perfectly, that your life will be lifted up to him as an offering of worship to glorify his name. And so let us let God glorify himself by conforming us to the image of Jesus. There's some applications at at this point. We're not done, but there's some applications already that kind of bubble up to the surface at this point as we look at some of this but I'm not going to call, bring them to mind right now. But I think we should take note of the fact that Paul also saw that this was, this was not, just, it's not just for himself. Most notably in this passage, he's not talking primarily about offering himself up. He's, he's talking about offering up the Gentiles, offering up those that he has invested his life in, He's telling us that he sees this as part of his unique role to be able to present an offering of Gentiles to God in the form of worship. None of us have the exact same specific calling that Paul does, but each of us has spheres of influence and people that God has placed into our life according to his sovereign will, different areas of our life. And why did he do that? I can't help but think that part of the reason is because he wants us to have a gospel influence on them. He wants us to 
have a gospel influence on them so that the lives of those that God has sovereignly placed within our spheres of influence might be an offering of praise and honor and worship to God. We talk all, all the time in our membership class about this, and we don't talk about it often enough, or at least it's been a while since we've talked about it in here on Sunday morning, the, the whole idea of a plus one conversation that, that every single person in our life, no matter what sphere of influence we know them from, they fall on a continuum between negative 10 and positive 10. Negative 10 being just as far as you can possibly get from God, just an atheist that rejects God and living a life that is running 180 degrees away from him. And positive 10 being, you know, one step is in heaven. One, one foot's already in heaven. Zero being the place in which God saves us and brings us across the line of faith and moves us from death to life. Every single person in your life and mine in all of our spheres of influence is somewhere between negative. And the whole idea of making disciples is being others-centered so that we might apply the gospel to each of those relationships in unique ways. And God might have us influence somebody who's a negative eight and see them move to a negative seven and be just one link in that chain of them coming to faith in Christ. Or he might, he might have us come alongside a new believer that's a, that's a two or a three and encourage them to be a four or a five or a seven and encourage them to step out in faith and be an eight or nine or whatever it is. God may sometimes give us the privilege of, of seeing him move somebody from negative one to zero and see them cross over the line of faith and go from death to life. But Everybody that we know is on that continuum, right? And so making disciples is all of that. Applying the gospel to all of those situations. And it, is, it should be our hope and it should be our desire that, that God would use our ministry, our effort of disciple making, that through that he might be honored and pleased by the offering that we lift up to him with these lives that have been transformed by the gospel. That should be our aim as well. So we've got, first of all, the audience of Paul's ministry, Gentiles. They're doing well, but they're not there yet. They're still being conformed to the image of Jesus, just like all of us. Secondly, the aim of his ministry, which is to present the offering of gospel-transformed lives as a means of worship. The third A is the assessment of Paul's ministry. How does he assess his ministry at this point in his life, in his ministry? You might recall from our background study of this letter, Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, from the city of Corinth, while he was on his third missionary journeys. Guess how many missionary journeys Paul had? Three. The last book of the Bible, maps and charts. You'll see. It's just it's three. That's all he had. There was a first missionary journey, the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, and there wasn't a fourth. Some say that he might have made it to Spain, but I don't think so. But regardless, he's in the waning years of his apostolic ministry here. And so at this point in this ministry, how does he assess his ministry? Look at verse 17. It's very interesting. It says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. How does that hit you? I have reason to be proud of my work. That's his evaluation of his ministry. That almost sounds 
That almost sounds prideful, arrogant, vain. A, to think that. B, to use that word. In some English translations, they use the word boasting. I have reason to boast in my ministry. But don't miss the first three words of verse 17. In Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one who changes us. So we'll, we'll, just, we'll come back to the assessment. We'll, we'll, let's move forward to now the agent of Paul's ministry. What is the agent of change? Who's the one who does the changing? It is Christ Jesus. Paul is assessing his ministry, and he says, in Christ he has reason for boasting, but boasting in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6, verse 14. He says, but far be it from me to boast except... In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is very clear that the degree to which the Roman believers are, are doing well and they're full of goodness and, and they're filled with all wisdom and they're able to instruct one another and admonish one another from the, to, to the degree that they're doing well in their spiritual walk with Jesus, it isn't owing to Paul. It is owing to Christ. And he wants to make this abundantly clear to them. And so he follows that up with verse 18 where he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So Paul's assessment of his ministry is, is, I see some fruit in their life, but you know what? Any fruit that there is is not owing to me. I'm just the vessel that God chose to use. It is Christ who did the work. It is Jesus who did the changing of lives. It is Christ who did the conforming and the transforming work in their life. And Paul was simply the vessel that God used. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when they were arguing about who's a better preacher, Apollos or Paul, or who, who should you get baptized by, Apollos or Paul. He says, what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Just servants? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord has signed to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So I mentioned some applications. Here's some applications to this point. <clears throat> First of all, that there should be no boasting. If, if there is any if there's any spiritual growth in your life as a believer in Jesus at all, no matter how small, if there is any maturing in your faith with Jesus, it's owing to Christ, not to you. And so we're, we're not to get puffed up about spiritual maturity and how much we've grown and how much we've changed because we are not the change agent in our own walk with Jesus. Jesus is. Now, granted, we play a role in our own sanctification and our own growth in Christ, but the role that we play is very secondary to the role that God plays through the Holy Spirit. So there's no boasting of self in the Christian life, only boasting in Christ. Second application, this should give us reason to thank God because he is the one who is changing us. He is the one who is growing us and conforming us to his image 
so that your life will look will be an offering of praise to him. You know, you look back on your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, <coughs> excuse me, you look back on your life, and even if it's only to a small degree, you are not the same person you were. You're just not the same person that you were. And Jesus should be thanked for that. He changed you. He made you a new person. And we're not just talking about your point of conversion. He's, he's to be credited with that as well. He gave you the faith to trust in him. His spirit put new life in you. He made you a new creation. But the moment that that happened, that exchange, however that worked out, you were still the same person with the same habits and the same tendencies and the same weaknesses. But God has been changing you. And to whatever degree you're different today, it's because Jesus has changed you. Don't forget that. Don't forget that, church. But not only thank him for that, this is also a reason to trust him today. Because that means he's still doing that. He hasn't stopped doing that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and he hasn't taken you home yet, which he hasn't because you're here, and he's still working on you. He's still changing you. He's still conforming you to the image of Christ. And sometimes he's going to use hard things in our life to do that. Sometimes he'll use suffering and trials to do that. And sometimes he'll use scripture and the truth that is here and the commands of scripture to show us how far we're falling short so that we might confess and repent and trust in Christ to change us because we certainly can't change ourselves. And so continue to daily trust and put your hope and faith in Christ for continuing change. Remember the, remember the promise that Paul made or gave to the church of Philippi. Thank you, brother. Remember, remember that promise where he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a promise. So you might be struggling in your walk. You might be stalled. You might be going backwards. But if God has been gracious to bring you to faith in Jesus, he hasn't stopped working. He's still working. You are a work in progress. So keep trusting in him. Not your own work. No, don't, don't trust in your own ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder to be a good Christian. Trust more in Jesus because he's the change agent. He's the one who's transforming you. Fourth application at this point. For those here who have spiritual influence with others, which really none of us don't. All of us have people in our spheres of influence that God has placed around us with whom we have potential gospel influence. But in particular, moms and dads, leaders. I think we should learn here from the example of Paul how to steward that gospel witness 
and that gospel influence with others. He says that God was faithful to transform the Gentile believers through his life. And at the end of that verse, he tells us how God used his life. He says, by word and by deed. So God used Paul's words. We know that. God used his teachings. God used his lectures in synagogues, on the street corners, in churches, in homes, in his writings, of course. God used Paul in how he explained the word of God to transform others, to conform others to the image of Jesus. But God also used Paul's deeds. He also used his life. So the example from Paul's life that God used to conform these Gentiles into the image of Christ was both the testimony of Paul's teaching and the testimony of Paul's life. Church, don't ever underestimate the power of our everyday lives to either affirm our teaching or to undermine our teaching. If you have children, you know this all too well. Children of all ages, but especially teenagers. I've had four teenagers, and I'll just tell you, especially teenagers. They see everything. They hear everything. Nothing escapes their notice. So mom and dad, let me ask you very plainly, does what your kids hear and see from you, from your life, how you live, does it give credibility to the words that come out of your mouth? Or does it contradict your teaching? And the same is true in every sphere of influence. Our deeds, our behavior, the way we live our life will either affirm the gospel or it will undermine the gospel. So it was Paul's words and deeds that God used to be a part of conforming these Gentile believers into the image of Jesus. But Paul wanted his readers to make sure that he knew, he was convinced, that it was not because of him. It wasn't up to him. So he follows that up with verse 19. So it's not only by word and deed, but also by the power of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So ultimately, us being conformed to the image of Christ is a miracle. That's what Paul's saying. By signs and wonders. It's a miracle of God. People say we don't see signs and wonders today. Listen, you can point to every person in this room who's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. And so the sanctification that is happening, even within our church, through trials and suffering and whatever the Lord is allowing into your life, is a miracle of God that he is bringing in your life so that your life would be an offering of praise to him. It's by miracles, and it's, it's a work of the Spirit of God, he says. So it is to him that we should give thanks and praise. But in all of this, Paul says at the end of verse 19, 
He believes that his ministry has been fulfilled. He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, which is above Italy, above Rome, into like Eastern Europe, so the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire, says, on all of these areas... I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, what Paul is not saying here, he's not saying that the Great Commission is accomplished. And he's not saying that he's done, because he's going to go on to say in the next few verses, I plan to come to you, I want to go to Spain, I plan to continue, I'm not giving up, I'm not stopping. But to the degree that the Lord has given me the, the, the time and the opportunity to go into these places and make these journeys... I fulfilled the mission. I've, I've done what he's asked me to do. Now, we've got one more A to cover. So we've got the audience, the aim, the assessment, the agent, and finally the approach of Paul's ministry. What was his strategy? What was the strategy he used? Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, and thus, which is a kind of a word of conclusion here, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul saw his unique ministry calling, not just to take the gospel to the Gentiles, but to take the gospel to places that don't even know the name of Jesus where Christ has not even been named. That's his ambition. Now, it's a mistake of ours if we discern in Paul's tone here any hint of pride. It might sound here like Paul is saying, listen, I'm just going to go do my own thing. I'm not going to go and, and build on anybody else's foundation because if, they, if they've already started preaching Christ and then I come in, then I won't get the credit. That's not what Paul is saying here at all. That's not his tone. He's simply stating his strategic focus that he believed God has given to him. Jesus gave him directly. And his strategic focus is to take the gospel to the Gentiles and specifically to make it his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. Now, that's not... In applying these, these verses here, we should consider not only our own unique calling as individual Christians, but we should consider, we should, should consider our calling as a church, the body of Christ. Not everyone's going to have that same calling, that, that specific calling that Paul was given to take the gospel to the Gentiles and to specifically take it where, where people don't even know Jesus' name. Christ has never even been mentioned. That was his specific calling. Not all of us are going to have that calling, but I hope and pray that some of us do. I hope and pray, I plead with the Lord, that he, he would raise up from among us, and maybe it's our kids, that God would lead some of them to say along with the Apostle Paul, I want to make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not even been named. How glorious would that be to send some from among us to do that. But although this may not be all of our specific calling individually, this calling to take the gospel to places where Jesus is not known 
is definitely a part of all of our calling because we're all a part of the body of Christ. And this is the calling on the church. The church has been given the command to make disciples of all nations, including those where Christ has not even been named. And they, even those peoples, are a part of that Revelation 7 picture that we have we're gathered around the Lamb will be people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and every people. So let us never lose focus, lose focus that though this is not part, may not be part of our individual calling, it is part of our calling corporately because we're part of the church, and this is the calling of the body of Christ. Let's pray.